Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. So today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by some returning guests. So I'm delighted that they've agreed to come back onto the podcast because I always have amazing conversations with these two. So welcome back, Maurice and Jamie. Um, thank you so much for again agreeing to take time out of your busy schedules, your busy work, research and academic schedules to um, give us updates on your projects. So. It's been some time. I think I thought it was only yesterday that we had a conversation, but I think it was um, over six months ago. So a lot of lot has happened in in that time. So I was just wondering for our audience. So so welcome back, first of all. Um, and I was just wondering from our audience if you'd be able to provide us with an an update on some of the MPOX work that you've been doing, because I know that was something we talked about towards the end of the, the last episode. But I'd be really interested if you could provide us with an update please yeah so we we started probably thinking about doing this work probably about exactly this time of year you know one year ago um and it was a rapid response call um because europe and um you know other, other areas had um particularly the uk had been experiencing a larger outbreak of mpox MPOX had had isolated outbreaks um, previously, but this was sort of much more widespread community transmission. Um, and we wanted to really look into what was happening and also then ultimately what lessons could be learned from how the, um, from how the pandemic was managed. Um, obviously, this also came off the back um, of a, of a very, you know, very intense pandemic, um, COVID-19. Um, and so that was in the back of our minds very much around how people respond to pandemics, how governments respond, um, what was done well, what was done badly. Um, and so the MPOX work was um, really looking to bring together uh, clinicians, policymakers, and then also people who had experienced um, MPOX uh, firsthand um, and to speak to them about what went well, what the difficulties were, um, how people worked together in a way that was uh, constructive 
Um, and then also to look for um, examples of things that didn't work as well. Um, and we spoke to people across a range of different countries, a range of different kind of areas and settings. Um, I think it's fair to say no one got it completely right, um, but also different people had some really good innovative practices um, around things like social media, around things like how um, NGOs and charities and local government work together. Um, and so different areas were doing different things well. And so hopefully um, in the report that we have, we highlight some of those things that can be that can be learnt um, for future responses. Because one thing we can absolutely be certain about, there will be other outbreaks um, of, um, of communicable diseases amongst kind of close communities or even kind of wider community spread. Um, and we're really keen that we learn how best to engage with people um, when, when that happens. Thank you so much for that. So Maurice, within that, and I don't know if this is maybe something Jamie might want to kind of talk about, um, you mentioned that it was a rapid response, so kind of a real-time sort of response to an emerging outbreak. So, and obviously you did amazing with all the work that you did, but I'm just wondering if there is anything around the timing of projects as well, because I think sometimes, definitely I know myself in academia, we like to, to plan things, we like to think about things, you know, was there anything that kind of struck you from that kind of rapid responseness and the emergent nature of the research? I mean, I would say that it was very difficult. It was very difficult because the very same people who were trying to involve in the research, which were oftentimes frontline clinicians or policy actors like local authorities, uh, BASH, they were already stretched past breaking point by the outbreak itself on top of years and years of underfunding. So it became very difficult to involve people. It became very difficult to work within university systems um, to very rapidly involve um, support staff to deliver money to, to deliver contracts. So it was very challenging. I think at the same time, however, it was very rapid uh, or, or there was a, a lot of an urgent need to, to the research and to respond to this outbreak. But it was, only like, it was only like that because it was affecting communities in the global north. Outbreaks like this and worse have been happening for decades in Western and Central Africa. And nobody in the UK has batted an eyelid uh, at trying to develop rapid response. And today, outbreaks much worse continue to happen in countries like Mexico and Brazil because of a lack of vaccines and a lack of diagnostics and treatments. And we're not seeing the same kind of, of pressure from funders or from universities to research those, um, those outbreaks. So I think on the one hand, yes, it was very difficult to do, but it also reveals a sort of um, interesting paradigm about what universities and funders and the UK government think is worth uh, a rapid research response and what situations they don't think are as worth of our attention. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd add in there that um, the rapidity of the research also made it a little difficult to to engage in really rigorous, reflective processes that made sure we had a, a 
a represent a diverse sample. Um, so because we were so against the time frame, sort of once we got some data, we had to just move on. Um, and I think it's fair to say that there are definitely group, you know, plenty of subgroups of people, things like sex workers that we just we didn't really hear the voices of in the ways that we wanted to. Um, and we are starting to hopefully um, do a bit more work in that area. But yeah, I think one of the problems with rapid research is that unless you have really excellent contacts that aren't absolutely burnt out, um, you you are you risk. And we did um, have less diversity than I think we wanted to in our sample. Um, and you know, and that obviously has implications for um, for how knowledge shapes healthcare services. I think there is a need for us to think, yes, rapid research is important, but you need to you need to also fund that longer, more in-depth, more reflective research. And that still has a huge amount of value. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So thinking about kind of how, how did this kind of come about for the pair of you? How did you get involved um you know just thinking for from our listeners point of view how was this something that what drew you to, to this how how did you get involved with this area because I know um, and it's kind of like a sneaky bit behind this from me so I know you're both very passionate um, and I know I'm interviewing you today in a professional context but actually you know there's that passion behind you both as well to, to make a difference in the world so I just wanted to kind of for our listeners um share that a little bit as well. So what kind of motivated you to get involved in this? Well, I mean, I think in practical terms, um, this started because the ESRC, during COVID, the ESRC is one of the larger funders uh, in the UK, had funded and set up a unit within UCL called the International Public Policy Observatory to kind of address the social uh, impacts of COVID. When MPOX uh, came round, the SRC asked that unit to put together a table of stakeholders, clinical, academic, non-clinical, people with lived experience, um, to kind of discuss what, what may be some of the priorities um, for the MPOX outbreak. At the time, it wasn't as clear that it would be very rapidly solved. It was an increasing concern. Um, some people were invited to that table. I was one of them because it was a very rapid, a rapidly assembled table. As Maurice says, the level of diversity was questionable, but it was nonetheless a very interesting discussion with lots of different perspectives. And the ESRC offered to fund a single application led by some of the people in that table, um, whoever they chose to be. Uh, around one of the priorities identified in that discussion. And that's how I got involved in, in, in the grant, how um, the other colleagues got involved, and how Maurice as well got involved, because we then could involve uh, additional researchers. So in terms of, of, of practicalities, I guess it was an issue of, of lack, uh, of not being away on holiday at the time, and other people being away, and therefore not taking um, their spots. Um, and that's how I started. And it, in, in fact, it led to a very, I would say, fulfilling and productive collaboration that is extending well into time now. Um, so that's kind of the practical element of it. 
Thanks for sharing that, Jamie. So we mentioned, Maurice kind of touched upon as well, this kind of um, social social media um, element to the project as well. And I'm thinking about my own reflections. MPOX was, you know, we, we were just sort of recovering it, even if we, we'll ever recover from kind of the COVID. Um, but, but that was kind of in the media and then MPOX came in. And I, I guess you've kind of touched on the fact that you know, everybody involved was actually working at a deficit because we just had years of, you know, onslaught as well. So I'm just wondering about the the importance or what you've learned from the, the social media kind of element. Because I think there was, depending on which, you know, streams you, you were in, it was kind of negative, positive. There was lots of kind of victim blame. It just felt not okay. So I just wondered if you'd be able to kind of maybe talk a little bit more around that. I would say, and Maurice can comment on this as well, that what we learned or what was most interesting is all the things we haven't learned. So within public health and health promotion, social media has for a long time been acknowledged as kind of the great next challenge. The the thing that could really cause a change in how we promote certain behaviours or could be completely destructive. And during COVID, we experienced both sides. So during COVID, there was a very effective use of social media in certain contexts, within certain communities, but there was also very destructive use of social media. And we see vaccine and COVID uh, deniers, etc. What we found really interesting during our research on MPOX is that all that knowledge that had been supposedly learned from COVID about how important social media is had not translated into adequately funding and developing social media strategies for an outbreak like MPOX. So what we saw is that many clinics and many organizations were relying on individuals, oftentimes influencers, sometimes not micro-influencers, to share messages that sometimes were accurate, sometimes were not, but essentially were only echoed in their own communities, were only heard or, or seen by those who were already engaged in those conversations. And here we see how, for example, some of the more um, popular messages that might have been shared in the UK were shared among very um, urban middle-class uh, gay men and excluding significant amounts of people who may not identify as that, who may not partake in those conversations. Therefore, I think the key lesson here is that for social media to be effectively deployed when dealing with an outlet like, like MPOG, we need to start working way before that happens. Start funding, start training, and start building those audiences, those uh, publics that will listen to messages, being aware of how any kind of activity like that can generate exclusions um, and therefore also needing to target them. Yeah, I think, I, I think I'd add to that that um, I think that there was a particular deficit with that in, in the UK, definitely. Um, and I think it was one of our participants referred to 
like finding an mpox vaccine as a twitter fueled vaccine treasure hunt it felt very disorganized you know as, as someone who was trying to access one at the time it felt very disorganized um i i think i was one of the first people to get it but it was by pure chance i think mean, i've made the second person in stockport something ludicrous like that um i think we did see um, I mean, Jamie's very right about the kind of the social media infrastructure needs to be embedded. Um, but we did see um, in, in one charity we spoke to in Germany that there were there seemed to be much better relationships between charities, NGOs, um, and even kind of private businesses like bars and clubs and things. And there was regular, there were just regular meetings with each other about. Um, you know, about a whole range of other sexual health things and sexual health promotion and um, workers would be physically in those spaces. Um, and I think that kind of consistent infrastructure building, yes, has to happen in social media, but also has to kind of happen physically. People need to know each other. Those lines of communication need to be there. Um, and of course, that it's kind of quite easy for, for two gay men to talk about what they gay networks look like. Um, but I think one of the broader implications is we also need to think about what that looks like for other communities, um, maybe particularly for sexual health, um, who are the trusted sources of information, um, what do those networks look like, are they more physical spaces, are they more um, virtual spaces. Thank you both for sharing that. It, it feels like listening to you that there has been a lot of lessons that you've both learned as a result of engaging in this project and delivering this research. I was just wondering from for our listeners, are you able to share some of those lessons that you've learned as a result, maybe key lessons or you know, hopes for the future maybe? I think I think one of my hopes for the future would be that and it sounds it sounds almost impossible at the current stage we're at, but that we will see investment into sexual health services. Um, they have been consistently divested from, and it's a slightly personal opinion, but I think we were fairly lucky with MPOX in that we have largely managed to contain it in the UK. Um, I'm not I mean, we're not being that lucky with, with things like syphilis, for example. Um, so I think so much, of it come, so much of it does come down to funding and giving, um, giving kind of sexual health uh, clinicians the time and the money and the ability to do that preventative work, that community engagement work. Um, and I think there's some very, you know, some very important targets, um, like eliminating HIV by 2030. And I, I worry that maybe we're going to struggle to hit those if we don't recognise that infrastructure is really important to be investing in. Um, and there's, there's things like Manchester has now has the highest positivity test rate result for STIs, excluding HIV. And you know, stuff, stuff's not going well. Um, and that's stuff that's kind of, you know, come up since, you know, since the research. But, um, and I think that's one of the things I'm very interested in looking at is how are people working together? 
And to some extent, we might have to look at how people work together in smarter, cheaper ways in like the in the context that we're in. Um, yeah, have I maybe wandered off the original question? <laughs> no, no, that's absolutely fine. I'm just kind of. Uh pausing at the thought of Manchester having the highest um, STR rights. It's in England. I don't, know what this, I don't know what the stats are for Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, but it's the highest positivity rate. And um, so, it's, you know, some, something's going wrong somewhere. Um, and whether that is to do with testing rates. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we saw clinicians, I think what's, what's, what, what is really worth saying is we saw clinicians working incredibly hard um, to attenuate and ameliorate the um, the real difficulties that their services have been put under over the past five to ten years um, to respond to MPOX. Um, and like Jamie said, just it was difficult to engage in them. We could see exactly why that was. They were having to take on an entire vaccination programme at incredibly short notice with very little um, backing. Um, so, yeah, I think we have to recognise that people worked incredibly hard um, and we maybe need to think about how we avoid getting into that situation again where it's a, a panic response that people are pulling out all the stops when they're kind of already pulled out. Yeah, no, that's it. And I think you've just touched... You just touched on that about um, a, a really kind of, it's like a perfect storm, isn't it, waiting to happen? And you mentioned as well that we, you know, Theresa's like, we've been lucky to contain it this time. And the view that we know that there's going to be another communicable disease. It's not when, you know, if it's just when, isn't it? When, when will that and what will that look like? From the, the work that you've been doing, is there anything that's emerging that you think as healthcare providers we could be thinking towards? I would worry focusing on healthcare providers who are already doing so much. So the particularly the frontline healthcare providers we talked to who included nurses, um, sexual health consultants, uh, even GPs, they were already going above and beyond both their their duties and their training to to provide the best service to to the people they were seeing i think we need to to emphasize the role that other actors play in this system and other actors are local authorities who commission services they are local authorities who license premises so they can be turned into vaccination centers or not they are the Department of Health and Social Care and UKHSA who have essentially this, the, the purse strings and who develop nationwide uh, strategies. They are uh, the NHS who collect information and not always do so accurately or usefully. Um, and there are funders who need to fund work before outbreaks happen so that we can be prepared. So there are lots of things people could do but I don't think clinicians are the people we can keep asking to do all these things time and time again, to be honest. I mean, I, I'd just leap in with that as well. I think just 
there were so this as I say this, as we said at the start this sort of followed on both conceptually but also like time wise from COVID there were definitely things that the powers and privileges and legislative changes during COVID that have now lapsed um, but particularly like Jamie said the ability to have pop up clinics. Um, and just to convert them without having to go through planning permission, that no longer exists. Um, payments to isolate. So, you know, MPOX, we were asking people to isolate. We weren't giving them any money to do it um, or any really any support to do it. Um, and I think also things like IT systems. You know, COVID had an entire dedicated IT system that really worked. I worked with it during COVID. I was vaccinating people. It worked really well. Um, and again, I'm not sure we have the same IT infrastructure um, available. So there's definitely things that we saw worked well during COVID um, that we've now lost the legislative power to do um, that would be wise to consider whether we want to keep those powers on the back burner. And we've lost legislative will to the things, which I think is even more concerning if mpox had spread beyond gay communities into heterosexual communities we would have seen a vastly different response to what we saw um, if the next outbreak which may well be avian flu um, will allow us to compare just how different um, different communities trigger responses so i think there's also there around willingness not just about but legislative powers. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting um, point you've just made there, Jamie. And I think that was definitely reflected in some of the social media feeds that I was, um, I don't know how I got into that algorithm, but there was definitely, yeah, some really choice words being used around that as well. So it will be interesting to see what the next response is when we, it's different communities. So just before we move on to the next um, section where I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the, the, the current work that you're working on as well, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners with regards to the projects on MPOX that you've been involved in? Well, you can, um, we've produced a very um, interesting report which you can find online in the IPPO website. Um, I'm sure you can find the URL to the report somewhere in the description of this episode, because um, I don't remember the URL uh, by heart. But we've, we've produced that. There's also a recording of the event when we launched the report. We had some key stakeholders uh, kind of talk about their experiences. And, you know, watch this space. There is still work that we're doing on MPOX that we're hoping to get funded in the next few months. So. Um, Yes, watch the space. We may have exciting news in the next few months. Or we may not, who knows? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I'm hoping it will be good news. So I'll definitely drop the URL in underneath and um, any other, other links um, as well. And yeah, share with our listeners your exciting news as it emerges. So thank you so much for that. 
So just moving on, um, I'm mindful, Jamie, that you, in amongst all this, you have launched uh, your book. Um, and I was just wondering if you'd like to take this opportunity to share a little bit more about that with our listeners. I do have my copy here, um, which I'm working my way through. So wonderful. Yeah, I wonder if you'd just like to provide an overview for our listeners. Yeah, so um, it feels like ages ago, but essentially the book is titled Viral Fantasies, the Eroticism of HIV, and it deals with how, with the role that pleasure and desire play in um, the sexual lives of gay men around HIV, particularly focusing on gay men who eroticize HIV. Um, I think the goal of the book is to move especially beyond the idea that these are deep, dark, obscure traveling practices and much more into looking at how what these men do and what these men feel can illuminate a lot about how HIV is constructed in society today, how PrEP, which prevents HIV and HIV treatment um, are also constructed. So it's about uh, departing from this very shocking um, kind of practice and much more into what can it tell us about the world in which we live. Um, it is relatively cheap uh, and you can find it online and on Amazon as well. Thank you so much for that. I will definitely pop a link into that and there will be more soon um, when I will provide a full overview of that book. It's just brilliant. So thank you so much for giving us a little sneak taster of what's, what's to come uh, more on HIV matters. So Morris, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you about yours now. So I, I know we've had conversations about this. So Morris is... Four years. <laughs> <laughs> but that's sometimes how, how long these things take to cook, isn't it? Um, so are you able to share any updates on your book for our listeners? Yeah, so, um, so for anyone who may not know, which is probably the world that I've ever spoken to. Um, I'm writing a book about um, about chemsex um, and I interviewed 20 guys for uh, two years um, about their experiences with chemsex. Um, everybody lived sort of within the orbit of Greater Manchester. Um, some people live sort of just outside technically. Um, but I was really interested in writing a book about the kind of Manchester experience because I think a lot of the research up to that point either had just been interviewing people as a one-off um, or there'd been a lot of kind of focused panic about London and to some extent Sydney, New York. Um, and it, it was this idea that sort of chemsex was destroying gay communities. And I didn't, you know, I intuitively just didn't see the same happening in Manchester. So the book is really a kind of in-depth look at what chemsex can tell us and maybe challenge about um, some of the main dilemmas of, um, of kind of modern life. So I look at um, kind of how fear and pleasure interact with each other um, in relation to kind of sexuality. I look at... Um, how trauma and tragedy function um, as ways to kind of um, police, but also maybe there's another way of thinking about that in relation to chemsex or chemsex gives us a different way of thinking about that. Um, I'm also very interested in thinking about what chemsex teaches us about how bodies relate to each other. Um, and then finally, I'm quite interested in returning back to this idea of 
chemsex being held up as something that is destroying um, like gay culture, but actually is everything that we have in gay culture always something that we want to keep? Um, and then I'm finally looking at kind of what that really means for how we think about morality um, is the main thrust of it. Um, and that's the that's literally what I'm going to carry on writing about when I get off this call. Um, so it's, it's still in the process of being written um, and hopefully it's going to be finished by the end of the year and then we'll go to the publishers and take some time to go through editorial change and things like that. But it's, um, it's feeling like it's very much getting there, which I am very happy with indeed. Um, I do also have a short um, article out actually about um, chemsex and um, mental health. Um, so I can send you a link for that. Um, and a lot of that is looking at kind of peer support and professional support and what and the limits of both of them. So another sneak tease of what's to come. So thank you for that. Um, and also I will look forward to reading that article that you sent through and I will also drop that link um, in the um, show description as well. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. So we're coming on to um, the final part of our show. I can't believe we're at this time. I know Morris is thinking, great, because I can go back to finishing the book. It's always um, sad when the podcast is coming to an end. But before we do um, kind of go, um, can you share with our listeners something that you do as part of your self-care? So I've, I've said this in previous uh, conversations I've had about this, but I, and I've had several conversations with Maurice about this. There is a lot of discourse um, particularly on academic Twitter, about people complaining how you know the work-life balance doesn't work for them, how they have to work on weekends, how they um, how it's impossible to keep a, a nine-to-five kind of appointment for many people, not for others, etc. And I think what what I have started to to tell the earlier career researchers uh, and PhDs in in our department is do whatever works for you at the current moment and there may be times in your life when working a much more chaotic schedule in which you work 9 to 10 12 to 4 and 6 to 9 works for you and there may be times which doesn't but i think it's coming to accept that what works for you may not be what works for other people and vice versa and i'm i'm going along that process of realizing that you know maybe I work well on weekends and that is fine for me to work on weekends as opposed to working on a Thursday or a Wednesday. Um, so yeah, I would say that has been the realization that I've had this year in terms of self-care, that what, self, what self-care works for me may not be what other people or what works for other people and vice versa. Thank you for sharing that, Jamie. That's, that's really helpful, isn't it? Because we do think about this balance and what what that means but actually you just articulated that can look very different for very different people and it's almost like giving yourself permission to say well that's okay it's working for me and, and that's all that matters yeah so thank you for sharing that Maurice um it's going to sound a little bit cliche at the start but um so one of the things that 
I, I, I really missed when, when COVID kind of struck. Um, I used to go to a yoga class nearby and it was run by two sisters who were just wonderfully supportive, um, particularly in the way that they spoke about what different bodies can do. Um, and yeah, I'm quite an active person. I enjoy cycling. I enjoy doing all sorts of things. And um, and when COVID ended, unfortunately, never restarted that class. They sort of got quite a large online following, and that's the only class they haven't restarted. Um, and so recently, about five six weeks ago, um, I started going to a different class, and it's just run by someone with a very similar um, sort of approach and vibe. And I'm I'm absolutely I'm absolutely loving like getting back into what my body can do, and it's actually quite fun um, not being able to do something um, and thinking, okay, well that's maybe something I can work towards. Um, and the other people in the class, you know, there's different levels and abilities. Um, and again, it's just really fun to be in a class where it feels quite supportive. And um, yeah, and I'm, I'm just loving that moment. And um, I think that's, um, it sounds cliche. Oh, I'm doing yoga for my self-care. But actually, yeah, it is. It's great fun. Um, and uh, it's interesting how my body feels different because of it. This is another thing we could talk about all day because, you know, I'm obsessed with yoga. So thank you for sharing that as part of your self-care. Um, yeah, and the human body is fascinating. So can you share with us a book that you've been reading recently? I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I just, it's, a, it's a sort of quasi... It's, it's not an academic book. Um, so my friend Mark Russ has um, written about... Um, uh, Quakerism and the um, and the way that Christianity fit, or well, the way that Quakers have claimed particular narratives of Christianity, and it's a really fascinating read because I think there is sometimes it's a very short read as well, um, and I think sometimes you have you know especially living in England. Um, and kind of Europe in general, which is either like a Catholic or Protestant narrative about Christianity. Um, there's some really wonderfully poetic ways of interpreting things, understanding things that um, he writes about that are quite restorative um, and quite interesting to think about. Um, so yeah, I've been really, I've been really enjoying reading his his perspectives that just make you go, oh yeah, why have we never thought about this or that in that way before? Of course, that's a very sensible way to think about it. So yeah, that's probably my my top book. By Mark Russ. Mark Russ. Okay, I will go and look that up. Thank you. Jamie, what about yourself? Um, well, I've read a book, which I cannot say which one it is because it's not published yet, but I'm really looking forward to it being published. It's uh, a book that I reviewed um, around HIV activism in the UK, a history of HIV activism in the UK, but a much more kind of everyday activism, questioning what activism really means and the extent to which a focus on a sort of American style act of activism ignores other sorts of everyday activism that has happened in the UK. 
it's going to be published hopefully in a couple months uh, and i'm really really excited i think it's a fantastic book um and when time comes i'll make sure to promote it uh, on twitter so look out for that yeah i will be stalking it even more so on twitter or actively interestingly following you to find out those details and share them um, as well so thank you for that yeah that sounds fabulous yeah and um, we currently did the um our stories told by us project and it was really thinking about that everyday activism it was really really powerful seeing how that played out within those stories as well so i'll be really keen to look out for that um, as well so our final question, so we like to end on a biggie, um, it's our magic wand. I just really wish one day somebody would give me a magic wand, but um, nobody will, because I'd be deadly. Um, so, um, Maurice, if money, time and resources weren't an issue, what would you like to change or seen done differently? It can sound very topical, but I would, I would get rid of child poverty. Simple as. I don't think it's even that complicated. I don't think we need a magic wand for it. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely not. I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to. Um, I, I would also um, sort out our asylum system. It's just ridiculous. People shouldn't be waiting as long as they wait. Um, it should take weeks, not years. There we go. I don't think I know enough about any of the issues to know how to solve them. Uh, I was talking with a with a friend yesterday. You know, if if you were appointed cabinet member, what cabinet office would you like to take? And I think I would like to solve the NHS, but I would have no clue where to start, uh, whom to fire, whom to hire, to even uh, start. So somewhere around there, but um, and also have high speed rail in the UK that would go to Spain as well because that would be so much easier but that's just a personal preference that wouldn't probably help many people but it would help me and it's my magic wand isn't it <laughs> well actually both all of your wish all of your wishes would help and the high speed rail would make my life so much better so I, that was great yeah the ripple effects of wishes thank you so thank you both so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure engaging in these conversations with you. I always go away with lots and lots to think about. So thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.